Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Those are the are verses 7 through 13 of Psalm 51, which is the psalm appointed for today, Monday, April the 11th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We are continuing here in Holy Week. Yesterday was Palm Sunday, so we're continuing here in Holy Week with Jeremiah's prophecy, chapter 12, the first 16 verses. And then um, the gospel is John 12, verses 9 to 19. And the epistle is from Paul's letter to the Philippian church, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. So there's a lot to get through today, particularly in this Jeremiah passage. So um, we, we need to keep context here. It's the announcement of judgment against God's people for their rejection of him in favor of the god Baal. So he begins, Jeremiah does, with his questions of the Lord. Righteous are you, Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root, they grow and produce fruit. You're near in their mouth and far from their heart. That's an interesting little comparison there. You're near in their mouth but far from their heart. Certainly, I've been that guy before, and I've certainly known plenty of people like that before who, who will talk a good game, but, it, but it's only all talk. And, and it becomes then, um, it's something that's used in order to do this. And I've seen this, certainly, with, with the calculated decisions to, to send certain things and to speak in certain ways. You know, it's like this whole... Uh, sort of fish thing that that says, okay, I'm a Christian business, but I've also seen it taken in vain. And that's what this means is to take the Lord's name in vain would be to do exactly what he's saying here. He'd be near in their mouth and far from their heart. And and I I had somebody come by one time that we were thinking about selling our house in Knoxville, and I called a local real estate company, and they sent somebody out, and she came, and she saw my Bible lay in there. So we spent some time talking about that, a long time, in fact. Um, And then when she got to the end of the little presentation, she said, okay, now I know you're not ready to sign a contract yet, but but here, let's go ahead. I'll, I'll go ahead and leave this with you, and the standard commission is 8%, and blah, blah, blah. Well, I never called back, and she started calling me, telling me she had people that she knew who wanted to look at our house. Well, it wasn't on the market. Let's start there. Um, but two, you know, you lied when you said it was an 8% standard commission. So I ended up talking to the uh, the lady who's, who, who owned the real estate company, uh, because this lady said, well, he won't return my calls. Well, there was no reason for me to return her calls. I hadn't signed a contract, and I wasn't going to sign a contract. So I, I don't have to return her calls about showing my house. So the, the head of the company called me, and we chatted, and I said, I'm not going to. And then she said, why not? And I said, well, here's what she did. She said, well, she just got confused. I said, well, 6% is standard residential real estate commission, and 10% is commercial. So you explain to me where 8 could have been an accident. So it's just this trading in your faith and, and making something public, but but that not being the way you live. 
But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and you test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither for the evil of those who dwell in it? The beasts and the birds are swept away because they said he will not see our latter end. And so what what uh, Jeremiah wants is sort of the opposite of what God's going to do. <laughs> what Jeremiah wants is is... Like if you think about the parable of the wheat and the weeds, where Jesus says, you know, that the wheat was planted, and then an enemy sowed tares among the the wheat, and they wanted the the uh, the servant said, hey, let's go pull up the tares, and they said, no, it looks too much like the wheat. We can't do that. It it won't produce anything, so we have to wait until the end, uh, until the time of harvest, because they don't produce anything, and it's easy to tell the difference. Now it's difficult to tell the difference. And so what Jeremiah wants is for those people who are the problem to be pulled out. And so then there would be this other group, and God says, no, we're going to do this the other way around. There's going to be a remnant of decent people left, those who are truly God-fearing. Um, it, it's going to the judgment's going to come exactly like it did at Sodom and Gomorrah. In some senses, everybody's not going to be wiped out, but they're all going to be taken into captivity, and many won't return. <clears throat> if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you um, compete with horses? And if in a safe land you're so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dre- dealt treacherously with you. They're in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. And and what he's saying, what God's saying in response to Jeremiah's question about why do the wicked prosper, is he's saying, well, the wicked are more numerous than you can even imagine, Jeremiah. Some of them are even in your father's household. Um, so you're only seeing a portion of the problem. He said, I've forsaken my house. I've abandoned my heritage. I've given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me. Therefore, I hate her. I mean, I I just can't imagine any worse set of words spoken against God's people than, therefore, I hate her. And it's because they, they have become like a roaring lion, which means that not only have they just neglected him, they've actively become antagonistic towards him. He said, is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go, assemble all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. It's on them. God says. It's it's on the shepherds. It's on the leaders of the people. They have made this place awful, and they have made it a stench in my nostrils by their worshiping these other gods and going after them. He said, they've made it a desolation, desolate. It mourns to me. The land does. And remember in, in Romans 8, Paul speaks of all creation has been groaning in anticipation of the revelation of the sons of God since it was put into captivity. And so here, he's he, God says to us here, there's two things. The land is crying out, and the land is crying out because it needs its rest in order to reach its productive capacity, and they're not giving it its rest. And so he says, upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come from the, for the sword of the Lord devours from one end of the land to the other. No flesh has peace. They have sown wheat and have reaped thorns. They have tired themselves out, but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given to my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I'll pluck them up from their land, and I'll pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I've plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I'll bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass, if they diligently learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. So what he's saying is the people are going to go into exile, but he's going to bring them back. They're going to overstep their authority against his people. And, and at that point, God will have compassion on me. He'll bring them back. And he will also bring back a remnant of the nations among whom they're scattered, and he will put them in the midst of God's people in the same way God's people are in the midst of them now, and that any of those who turn to the Lord, he'll have compassion on them, and he'll build them up in the midst of his people in the same way that he's going to build up people his people in the midst of them, in the same way that he did it when they were in Egypt. In the gospel lesson today, so we've got Jesus coming into town. We're, we're going to repeat a little bit of yesterday today. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised up from the dead. So they came to Bethany, which is, John's already told us, it's a couple of miles from downtown Jerusalem. And so they come to Bethany to see something. They, they, the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That second part's the bigger problem. They're, they're losing some of their flock. The, these are the shepherds. These are the ones, these chief priests that, that he's speaking of here. They would be the shepherds God's talking about over in Jeremiah 12 that these are bad shepherds. And Jesus tells parables about him the last week of, uh, of his life. When he's here in Jerusalem, he tells parables about these same shepherds and, and, ex- and says, God's going to judge you again, and he's going to take this away from you. So here they've decided not only are they going to put Jesus to death, and we know that they are because they said they're going to put Lazarus to death as well. So they're not only going to put Jesus to death, they're going to put Lazarus to death as well to, to get rid of the evidence, essentially. They're going to destroy evidence here, and the evidence is of Jesus is raising him from the dead. Well, there, there were a lot of witnesses to that, but they don't seem to ever learn their lesson on this. And this is the reason this, John's the one who tells us this, and he's the only one who tells the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So the conclusion that we come to is, is that, that by the point in time when John wrote his gospel, which was the last one to be written, then Lazarus had already died and he was gone. So it was safe for Lazarus, for John to tell the story. The story would certainly have circulated. Everybody would have known this. <coughs> The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast um, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So these are all those who have come to Passover, not the ones who have gone out and believed in Jesus. Those are the ones going out from Jerusalem. Now we're talking about the people coming in. So they, those pilgrims, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written in Zechariah's prophecy. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So this was a a, a donkey was a symbol of peaceful uh, coming. So if a king came to visit, then he would come on a donkey. 
or in retinue, but, but he wouldn't come on a horse because if he came on a horse, then it would signify that he was down for a fight. And this was going to be a battle and a war. He was not coming in peace. But when he comes in on the donkey, the signal is that I come in peace. This is a peaceable kingdom. And it's the peaceable kingdom that Isaiah describes to us where the lion and the lamb lie down together and the child plays over the uh, adder's den and all that. So that's what's going on is Jesus is coming in as a king, but as a king coming to be um, crowned without a battle. And it could have been that way. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. In other words, they continued to talk about this whole thing with Lazarus. So it's a problem for the chief priest because the word, you know, before it was sort of uh, encapsulated in Capernaum in Jerusalem, but now you've got all these pilgrims coming from all these places, and they're hearing this story of the one who's coming in here. They're hearing the story that he just raised this one from the dead. And so now the, the momentum has built, and it seems that Jesus is coming in to become king, and yet there's opposition to him becoming king. It's not coming from him. It's coming from these shepherds, these religious leaders. And the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So we're losing ground here. The Pharisees look and see, "Uh uh-oh, everybody's going out to him. And, And it's the same thing that they were saying to John's disciples when Jesus and his disciples started baptizing. Look, now, what do you What do you say? They're going after him, and now here, it's their loss. How did John handle losing people? John handled it by saying that he must increase and I must decrease. I'm less important than he is. He's the one I came to tell you about. The Pharisees are saying, what are we going to do to keep a hold on the people? In the uh, epistle, Paul is, is writing and defending, at some level, he's defending his apostleship, but the other side of it is he's telling them who to look out for. He, he, he knows that what always happens whenever Paul establishes a work is this group of Jews comes in and tries to unsettle the congregation. And the way they unsettle them is by telling them you need to be circumcised in order to know for certain that you're going to participate in the life of the world to come. So he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. I want you to know these things. It's important that you do this. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And if, if you don't know what he's talking about, then then you might come to a, a weird conclusion that, that this is he's against tattoos, he's against whatever. But no, he, he says, we are the circumcision. So he's clearly talking about those who would come in and insist on them being circumcised to be fully integrated into the covenant. He says, we're the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Those are the three marks of our community. He says, we worship by the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for the confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You can't get any more Hebrew than me, he says. I have it all. As to the law, a Pharisee. In other words, I'm a guy who took the word of God seriously. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. What does he mean by that? He has kept the law. If you hear the rich young ruler come up, Jesus you know, lists all the things that, that you have to do vis-a-vis your neighbor. He doesn't mention the, the worship of God and all that stuff. Jesus mentions only to the rich young ruler the stuff that you do that's external, the things that people can see. So it's the way you treat your neighbor. It's, the, it's not murdering, not coveting, not committing adultery, not bearing false witness, all those things honoring father and mother, all of that. And then, and then here, that's what Paul's talking about. So that guy says, I've done all these things since I was born, or since my youth, actually. And Paul says, yeah, me too. Uh-huh. So you'd look at me, and nobody could come and criticize me under the law. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So all the stuff that I could glory in, all the stuff that I could tell you I take confidence in, was absolutely and utterly destroyed in Jesus. I I, I see it now for what it's worth, and what it's worth is, well, nothing. Nothing. Glad I lost all of it. Because what I got in return, Christ Jesus... And knowing him is worth so much more than that, that that stuff just looks like absolute nothing and worse in my sight. He says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, because that looks like filthy rags compared to the righteousness that he sees in Christ Jesus. But that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul understands that, that, that the commitment level that Jesus asks for is all in. All your chips in the center of the table, let them go. Depend on me, period. End of sentence. Nothing else. Not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect. So Paul's not resting in the knowledge of his salvation because he's been justified. No, he's pursuing sanctification as well. He's pursuing Christ. He's pursuing knowing him. He's pursuing proclaiming him. He's pursuing his presence. He is, he is seeking with his whole heart because he saw the treasure in the field. He saw the pearl of great price. He knows what's there. He said, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I do this because he did that. That's it. Period. End of sentence. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, all the stuff that he listed before, circumcising the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisaic Jew as to the law, as to zeal of persecution, all that stuff. He said, I forget all that. And I strain forward to what lies ahead. There's something so much greater that lies ahead than anything that we could imagine in this life. And he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He said, you want to know me and you want to understand me? I pursue him. Everything I do is to pursue the end of knowing him and being found in him and standing before him 
at the great throne of grace and hearing well done good and faithful servant is that your aim today it should be our aim every day to please him in every single way in everything that we do in our lives let's commit ourselves to that just as paul had committed himself 